Prostrated is always one of those words you got to be careful with. <laughs> a number of years ago, we had a gentleman who was reading for us one Sunday morning. <laughs> I don't know why I'm telling you this story. <laughs> and there's a, a story in the Gospels of a man journeying to Peniel. And as he was reading, he announced that that individual was not journeying to Peniel. He was journeying to penile, and we all laughed, and it still haunts him to this day. It's fine. I want you to, uh, to, to hold that gospel passage for, for just a moment. We're not going to talk about it just yet, but I do want to draw our attention to our Old Testament reading today. This comes from Jeremiah. And this is Jeremiah 29. It says, these are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So the world is super chill right now. I'm uh, in a, a group text message with my, all my in-laws and it's a lot of fun. And almost every time, there, there's, there's inevitably one of us that'll like share a picture of a kid or like, hey, we're out to eat, look at us doing this thing, it's fun, thinking about you guys. There's always one person that upon receiving that nice picture or hey, thinking about you guys, that little reminder is just enough to remind him that like, oh yeah, there's this terrible news that I wanted to share with you all. And every time we share something, like we have a name for it, but if I named it, it would name the person. Every time it happens, every time I send something in the text message, inevitably the next response is not, oh, that's so nice, looks like you guys are having fun, enjoy your evening, it's, hey, look, Russia is thinking about nuclear options. And that was the case this week. Uh, one of us sent a picture of our kids and the text message in response was an article from like the AP that was like, there's never been a higher nuclear threat since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Enjoy your Thursday. <laughs> so the world is super chill. There's not a whole lot going on. But we know that as soon as this kind of fear gets loose, 
as soon as these kinds of narratives start to spread, that it feels very disorienting. It feels like we're, we're longing for another time when things felt a little more familiar, when things felt a little more certain. And here we are in 2022, and to think about the last time anything felt very certain feels like we've got to do some pretty deep imaginative work. Like it's, it's been a minute. But more and more we're learning how to live with that feeling of disorientation. We're used to the world looking a certain way, having a certain level of control, and all of that just continues to feel very much up in the air. Jeremiah is writing to people who are feeling exactly that kind of feeling, writing to people who have known what it is to be in control, to be in charge, to know that the future is going to look a certain way, and then all of a sudden, everything gets uprooted. Everything's up in the air. We don't know what tomorrow looks like. And Jeremiah is writing to two groups of people. There are, there are some people who in exile have been able to remain in their homeland. Some of these who have been able to stay in their homes, but they're living under Babylonian jurisdiction. And then there's another group of people who were actually taken from their homes, people that were actually forced out of their homeland, who had been led away and taken to a strange land. They're living in an unfamiliar place, in disorientation, in uncertainty about the future. And in the first part of the book of Jeremiah, we see a lot of his writings are warnings about Babylon saying that, hey, if we keep doing these things, this is going to be the thing that happens. Things don't look great, but there's an opportunity for things to change, for things to get better. If you repent, and we can hope things just might turn around. And of course, Jeremiah isn't a terribly popular person. I mean, he's the one who's, who's constantly giving bad news. He's always naming reality the way that it actually is rather than how we would like it to be. But in the middle of Jeremiah warning the people of God, saying, hey, there's a chance this could go differently. But for the moment, it looks like it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. In the middle of his communication, there are these other false prophets who are going around saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. This is the message that we want. <laughs> this is the message that when we feel afraid about the future, when we can't make ends meet, when those relationships aren't working out the way that we'd hoped they would, when you're living in a place that you don't recognize anymore, the word that we want to hear is peace. Surely there's going to come a time when all of this is going to be right. Surely there's going to be a time when we're going to be able to go home, back to that familiar place. Surely there's going to be a day when we're back in control. Our guy will be in the oval. The people who think like me will be the ones making the decisions. This is what we want. Peace. But this isn't the word that comes to God's people. This is the word of false prophets. Again, Jeremiah wasn't a particularly popular person. And of all the unpopular things that he wrote, and he wrote a lot of them, I have to imagine this is one of the worst ones. 
Because it's at this moment when the worst just keeps coming. And the hope of the people of God, the hope that they're holding on to, is that surely things can't get worse from here. But they do. And they just keep getting worse. And all the while, the hope that the Israelites have is that God's going to deliver us. Surely God is going to come and rescue us from all of this nonsense. And it's in the middle of this moment when we are at the end of ourselves. It's at that moment Jeremiah brings them this word. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat from them. Settle in. Go ahead and have some kids. And then when those kids get, get older, let's go ahead and have some grandkids. We're going to be here a little while. I know you thought deliverance was at hand. <laughs> but that's not how this is going to work out. To be sure, God's salvation is still coming, but maybe not as soon as you hoped it would. That's Jeremiah's word to the people of God. And yes, of course, we are called to be people of hope, but what if it's going to get worse before it gets better? <laughs> this is the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ today. What if things are just gonna keep getting worse? <laughs> Paul's letter to Timothy, it's our epistle reading for today. He understands this kind of deep wisdom. He's in this moment where he knows he's going to be martyred. The end is, is in sight. So he's trying to comfort Timothy, letting him know, hey, you're the one who's going to kind of take on this mantle. You need to be prepared to do the work. And in the middle of this writing to Timothy, he tells him, if we are faithless, God remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. This is the word at the worst moment of our lives when we think surely it can't get worse from here. This is the word that we hear. Remain faithful. And you know what? Even if you can't, that's okay too. Because God will remain faithful to you even in your faithlessness because God cannot deny himself, which is a way of saying God can't help himself but be faithful to you. Faithfulness is not just an attribute of God. It's not just a thing that God does. Faithfulness at its core is part of who God is and how God relates to us, is faithfulness. God is still going to show up. God is still going to deliver you from all of this foolishness, but it might take some time. One of the things that the early church had to process over the first 100 to 150 years was the fact that they're not, they're, they weren't planning on passing any of this down. Jesus, to be sure, was coming by the weekend. So we don't need to have a plan for like, you know, what if that pastor dies? Who's going to take his place? What if he has to move on? What if he lives a life of unfaithfulness? We don't have a whole lot of like succession models here in the early church because they didn't think they would need them. 
And then, of course, somebody wise enough started looking around and going, you know what? Uh, maybe we should have a plan for the next generation. Maybe Jesus coming is, is still on the horizon. It's still the hope that we hold on to, but maybe it's gonna, maybe it's gonna look a little differently than we anticipated, than we planned. So they had to come up with this collective sense, we may be here a while, so let's put some, let's put some systems in place. And this makes sense, right? We confess this every week. Christ will come again. That is our hope. But what if Christ's coming to us looks differently than we've imagined? What if our hope in Christ's coming is not necessarily the hope of the world, is not necessarily the way that God is going to flush all this stuff out? I believe Jesus is coming again. But there's also a deep wisdom here that we shouldn't ignore the realities in which we live. That even amidst uncertainty and frustration and all the unknowables about the future, that the hope is not Jesus is gonna come rescue us and we're gonna escape all of this. It's build a house and live in it. Have some kids. Plant a garden, tend to it. Anybody who's planted a garden knows you don't just go out there and put some seeds in the ground and the next day you've got tomatoes. It takes time, it takes attention, it takes care, it takes tending to. This is what Jeremiah tells the people of God to do. Settle in, we're gonna be here for a minute. So it's good for us, it's good for us to live with that hope, this, this promise that God's restoration is coming. But what if instead of, of coming out of exile anytime soon, what if the future looks like getting pressed further in? Then what are we gonna do? Walter Brueggemann, commenting on the way our culture is, is working on us. He talks about the, the homogenizing work that culture does, the effect that it has on us as a people. It's this idea that we are, we're so shaped by our consumerism, by the political systems that we live in, by materialism, that over time, we as the people of God, as the church, we lose all of those little distinctives that mark us as Christians. And he says that this is what it is to live prophetically in the world. This is what it is to live with a kind of, of hope, is that we're in exile. We know where we are. We're aware of it. But what if we just need to reclaim those distinctives, those things that mark us as the people of God? Returning to the songs that we sing, the practices that distinguish who we are. Jeremiah is saying, you don't have to, to love the reality of exile and certainly don't fall in love with Babylon. Don't fall in love with the empire, but you do have to accept the reality of exile. 
So that as we remember who we are in a foreign land, and we are in a foreign land, our peculiar songs and our prayers, our liturgies and our rhythms of life, these rhythms of fasting and feasting, we can look at the city in which we live and we can see that God's posture toward the empires of our day is care, is the welfare of the city. Again, hear Jeremiah's words, seek the welfare of the city for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For decades, the reality of, of the people of God is that life is awful and life is painful. And when is God going to come save us? And God is saying, don't, don't do that. Don't be so preoccupied with your own salvation. Apparently, God isn't just concerned with the salvation of Israel. God has a plan and God has a blessing for Babylon. In this strange land, in the world as it is and not as it should be, the world that you have been given, the question now, how are you going to live? What are you going to do about it? Because this is who we are. We are people who live to bless the world. That's who we are. When we read the prophets, it seems like exile is a punishment. Like exile is where you find yourself when you've disobeyed or you've, you've found yourself outside of God's will. But again, here verse seven, it creates this tension. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, where I have placed you. Maybe there are some things that you could have done differently, but now the sense of the people of God is that God has sent them. God has placed them right where they are. You're not in the wrong place at the wrong, at the wrong time. <laughs> what if you're right where God wants you to be so that you can become a blessing to other people? We all know what it is to feel like we've ended up Somewhere we don't want to be. We all know that feeling. We all know what it is to have relationships in places we don't want them to be, maybe occupationally, or someplace we don't want to be, maybe economically, or someplace that we don't want to be. And at times, it can even feel like God is punishing you in those ways for not doing what you should have done. The last thing you want to hear in that moment is settle in. Build a home for your kids and for your grandkids. But what if instead of punishment, we begin to sense, no, no, God has placed you here. God has sent you here commissioned you for this place. You are graced for this work. God's hand is still on you. But God, this isn't a time to be thinking about anyone else. I've got to think about me. What about me? You want me to take care of these other people? That is the strangeness of Jeremiah's announcement the strangeness of the promise of God to his people that if you will work for the peace of others, 
I will bring you peace. If you stop being so preoccupied with your own salvation, I will deliver you. And here, the, the, the particularity of the promise. Seek the welfare of the city. Sounds great. Seek the welfare of Tulsa. Seek the welfare of your families. Seek the welfare of your coworkers and the people that you work with. Too often, we, we get distracted by the big picture stuff. That if we can just focus on the reality of exile, if we can just focus on the way that this is the work of, of kings and empires and systems that are bigger than us, we feel like it actually relieves us of some responsibility. We'd rather live in those abstractions and in those metaphors because it's, it's so impersonal, right? It's so beyond us. It's so out of our control. We want to blame the president or the governor or the head of the HOA. But God says, take care of the people where you live and I will take care of you. It's election season. And the common sense around everyone is, what are we going to do? <laughs> if this person doesn't win, I'm going to leave the country. No, you're not. You're, you're just not. So what are you going to do? At the end of the day, we don't have control over any of it. Vote, don't vote, whatever. This isn't about that. We freak out on elections, and God just wants to know if you'll take care of the people right around you. Don't get so hung up in the abstractions. Don't get so hung up in the metaphors and the things that are bigger than life. Yes, it feels good to criticize those kinds of things because it relieves us of our responsibility. But God is asking us the question, will you just take care of the people who are right around you? if we're so concerned about the big picture stuff that we lose our focus on who we are and where we are, Jesus says that you lose your light in the world. Jesus says you lose your saltiness. Some of us could do it with a little less saltiness. But we lose those parts of our lives and our identity and our community that help us to preserve the work that God is doing, those distinctive things. Do, does your showing up in people's lives just make the world taste a little better? Jesus tells us today that the trick of living as outcasts, as exiles, that it's found in living lives of thanksgiving. The lepers are made clean but the one returns to give thanks. And that one, the text says, wasn't just made clean, he was made well. He was made whole. When we live from that place of Eucharist, of thanksgiving, our lives aren't just cleansed, they are healed and made whole, made well. We become empowered to be people who can seek the welfare of the city, the goodness of 
Tulsa, the peace of Tulsa. We can do good to those who hate us because God has made us whole. God has brought us peace. God will deliver us. And God will be faithful even in our faithlessness because God just can't help himself. He can't help himself but to care for you as you're caring for others. Amen.